The future could be brilliant. A personal inquiry into why much of the world seems crazy and what to do about it. Part 3. Humankind In the light of the knowledge that there are people without empathy, compassion or a conscience, we can begin to see the distortion in what we take to be normal human society and culture. Everywhere you care to look, you can find evidence of this distortion. Perhaps the easiest place to see it is in the extremes. Imagine, if you will, the sound of tanks rolling into Poland at the beginning of the Second World War and all the fear and apprehension that it invoked. The Nazis had arrived and their regime of terror begun. A young Polish man, Andrew Lobachevsky, was there. He was there also when the Russians arrived. Their tanks and war machine rolled in from the east and between them they divided up his country. Eventually, the Russian communists drove the German Nazis out. Two very different ideologies had clashed in a horrendous battle. But over time, Andrew observed something remarkable. What became clear to him was that many of the people who were in charge of both regimes were essentially the same. They were clearly perverse in nature. They subjugated truth for propaganda. They wielded power in a cold, ruthless, cruel, selfish and heartless way. Oppression and authoritarianism were the order of the day. Andrew was no casual observer and had studied clinical psychology, psychotherapy and psychiatry. Along with other colleagues in Poland, Czechoslovakia and Hungary, they secretly observed the people who drove the communist regime and looked back at the experience of Nazism. Their conclusion was that ideology was secondary. Many people who rose to positions of power in each of these repressive regimes were following some other motivation, and the ideology they professed was essentially just a front a convenience, if you like. This group of brave scientists, who risked their livelihoods, liberty and lives to study this, concluded that what was being played out was the malign influence of psychopaths on society. His book, Political Ponderology, is a remarkable work. Andrew and his colleagues give a scientific explanation for evil for the first time. Gone is the need for inventing a mythical monster, the devil, as a magical explanation for all that's wrong in the world. There is simply an objective explanation for it, based on fact. Some people are born with a lack of conscience, a cold-heartedness due to inadequate mental wiring or internal chemistry, and as a result are capable of the most gross behaviour imaginable. Others become similar due to environmental factors, such as brain damage or trauma. They lack the internal restraints and templates which make the rest of us humane and give us morality. When they rise to positions of power, which many actively seek, they can be responsible for the instigation of the kind of acts of bestiality and inhumanity that have shocked, horrified, terrified and perplexed ordinary humans for centuries. According to Andrew and his colleagues, 
Man's inhumanity to man is not a product of some intrinsic sinfulness or uncontrollable animalism barely contained by strict social conventions. It's directly related to the existence of those with the hidden disability we call psychopathy or sociopathy. This is the root cause of what we call evil in the world. To say this was a revelation to me is an understatement. From my personal experience of dealing with someone who had no sense of guilt or shame, to an insight into the key struggle between good and evil, lots of things about life that had failed to make sense started to fall into place. It's almost as if there were two species of Homo sapiens, the majority who are intrinsically humane by nature and those who disturbingly are not. More light was shed in the subject of true human nature when I was lucky enough to come across the work of Dave Grossman. Dave was a psychologist but was also a lieutenant colonel in the American Army. He became curious about people's experiences of having to kill another human being in war. In his book On Killing, he describes his attempt to understand this and draws a remarkable conclusion. Despite an unbroken tradition of violence and war, man is not by nature a killer. Dave's researches showed that most people, human animals, have an inbuilt inhibition to seriously hurt another human being. The remarkable evidence that Dave gathered revealed a startlingly different picture of human behaviour than I'd been led to believe through countless war films, books and comics. As Dave writes... Prior to World War II, it had always been assumed that the average soldier would kill in combat simply because his country and his leaders had told him to do so, and because it was essential to defend his own life and the lives of his friends. When the point came that he didn't kill, it was assumed that he panicked and ran. But during World War II, US Army Brigadier General S.L.A. Marshall asked average soldiers what it was that they did in battle. His singularly unexpected discovery was that of every hundred men along the line of fire during the period of an encounter, an average of only 15 to 20 would take any part with their weapons. Following interviews with thousands of soldiers in Europe and the Pacific, the results were consistently the same. Only 15 to 20% of the American riflemen in combat during World War II would fire at the enemy. Those who did not fire did not run or hide. In many cases, they were willing to risk great danger to rescue comrades, get ammunition or run messages. But they simply would not fire their weapons at the enemy, even, for example, when faced with repeated waves of Banzai charges. The same was true for the Japanese and German soldiers. It was argued that if a higher proportion of their soldiers had been willing to kill, then their volume of fire would have been three, four or five times greater than the Americans, but it wasn't. They became fascinated and asked the obvious question. Why did these men fail to fire? As I examined this question and studied the process of killing in combat from the standpoint of a historian, a psychologist and a soldier, I began to realise 
that there was one major factor that was missing from the common understanding of killing in combat, a factor that answers this question and more. That missing factor is the simple and demonstrable fact that there is within most men an intense resistance to killing their fellow man. A resistance so strong that in many circumstances soldiers on the battlefield will die before they can overcome it. Dave described reports of battles in the American Civil War. This was one of the first industrialised wars with mass-produced guns. These weapons were reasonably accurate, and you would imagine that within a relatively short time that many soldiers would be struck down and the fight concluded. However, reports indicated that the battles raged for hours. From the Napoleonic and Civil War era, muzzle-loading muskets could fire from one to five shots per minute, depending on the skill of the operator and the state of the weapon. With a potential hit rate of well over 50% at the average combat ranges of this era, the killing rate should have been hundreds per minute, instead of one or two. The weak link between the killing potential and the killing capability of these units was the soldier. The simple fact appears to be that, like SLA Marshall's riflemen of World War II, the vast majority of the rifle and musket-armed soldiers of previous wars were consistent and persistent in their psychological inability to kill their fellow human beings. Their weapons were technologically capable and they were physically quite able to kill, but at the decisive moment each soldier found that in his heart he could not bring himself to kill the man standing before him. This all indicates that there is a force at play here, a previously undiscovered psychological force, a force stronger than drill, stronger than peer pressure, even stronger than the self-preservation instinct. This lack of enthusiasm for killing the enemy causes many soldiers to posture, submit or flee rather than fight, It represents a powerful psychological force on the battlefield and it is a force that is discernible through the history of man. The application and understanding of this force can lend new insight to military history, the nature of war and the nature of man. There can be no doubt that this resistance to killing one's fellow man is there and that it exists as a result of a powerful combination of instinctive, rational, environmental, hereditary, cultural and social factors. It is there, it is strong, and it gives us cause to believe that there may just be hope for mankind after all. To me, this was startling information. The stories of man's inhumanity to man were suddenly illuminated in a very new light. We are not intrinsically killers. Even in the most extreme of circumstances, the vast majority of us will not kill another human being. We can kill. We can kill other humans and other animals, given the right circumstances and conditions. But essentially, we're humane beings in the full sense of the word. Remarkable, isn't it? So why, I wondered, have there been so many wars, so much madness and mayhem? Dave, almost as an aside, gives a crucial part of the answer. It is though there were two filters that we have to go through to kill. The first filter is the forebrain. 
A hundred things can convince your forebrain to put a gun in your hand and go to a certain point. Poverty, drugs, gangs, leaders, politics, and the social learning of violence in the media, which is magnified when you are from a broken home and are searching for a role model. But traditionally, all these things have slammed into the resistance that a frightened, angry human confronts in the midbrain. And except for sociopaths, who by definition do not have this resistance, the vast, vast majority of circumstances are not sufficient to overcome this midbrain safety net. And there we have it. Except for sociopaths, who by definition do not have this resistance. As I understand it, everyone has to gather sustenance from their environment to survive. We're all hunter-gatherers. We're all predators of sorts. However, what I was learning was that most people have a natural inhibition against preying on their own kind. If we didn't, we probably wouldn't survive. What I was realising was that sociopathic individuals people with sociopathic tendencies lack this internal restraint to one degree or another. You could argue that we need these people in time of war. Without them, we're potentially very vulnerable. It was estimated that 1% of American fighter pilots in World War II were responsible for 40% of all kills. The few who are prepared to kill are essential to survival in time of war. But people who don't have empathy for others, who don't have compassion or a conscience, who don't have an inhibition to harm others, distort society big style, including promoting war as opportunistic, appealing and glamorous. Without them, would we even have wars? The invaluable insight of Dave Grossman's research since showing man's remarkable humanity to man. A true nature is not what has been painted. There are some who are inhumane, but in a way, they can't help it. Sociopaths lack intrinsic humanity because of their makeup. But the rest of us are very, very different animals to how we've been portrayed. next episode, heartless or humane? That is the real question.